You're, You're listening, listening to, to Booth One. It's time again for another episode of Booth One, your only stop for the best and lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski, your host here. My co-host Frank Taranjo is off judging speech contests. He's a busy guy at this time of year. We'll have him back soon, but I am thrilled as can be to have two marvelous people in the booth with me today. Theater professionals that I have a lot in common with, as you will learn. Welcome to Malcolm Ewan and Laura Glenn. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello, good morning. <laughs> Thanks for coming by. Good morning. Yeah, yes, this is, is unusual that we have a morning broadcast. Thank you for that. Malcolm and Laura have unique careers in the theater, I should say. They are both stage managers, and we'll get to that as well in a few moments. Let me give you a bit of their CVs. Malcolm Ewan has worked at Steppenwolf Theater Company since 1987. Is, has it been that long? It has been that long, yes. <laughs> You must have your own dressing room named after you by now. I wish. Credits include Familiar, The Doppelganger, The Christians, Mary Page Marlowe, John Steinbeck's East of Eden, Airline Highway, Russian Transport. I could go on and on. American Buffalo, Man from Nebraska. He's taken four Steppenwolf Company shows to Broadway, including The Grapes of Wrath. I want to hear more about that in a few minutes. And Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, both of which won Tony Awards. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on that. He was the production stage manager of Paul Simon's musical The Cape man one of the largest financial failures in the history of broadway you and i have something in common i was the stage manager for legs diamond do you remember that musical yeah Yeah, that's one that's up on the wall in joe allen that's that's a a cape man poster which i sat under a couple months ago when i was there He's taken Steppenwolf Productions all around the country and the world. He's a recipient of the Del Hughes Award for Lifetime Achievement in Stage Management. Are you getting the picture, listeners? This is one of the great theater professionals in Chicago, a graduate of Amherst College. He has returned to Vermont during summers for over 30 years to direct at the Weston Playhouse Theater Company, where you're also one of the founding directors. Correct. Do you enjoy directing as much as you enjoy stage management? I do. It's nice to have a change of pace. Sometimes, I mean, they're certainly related. Uh, I think I'm better at both of them because I do the other. On the, mm-hmm. on the flip side, I think I'm a better uh, stage manager because I can direct and see what the problems are. Sure. I think I'm a better director based on my stage management because I know how to sort of be efficient and how to get through rehearsal problems and things like that. Sure. Laura Glenn has worked well. Laura D. Glenn. Do you like the D? What's the D stand for? It was when I joined the union, there was already a Laura Glenn. Makes perfect sense. So I had to stick the initial in there. Yeah. Laura Glenn has worked with Steppenwolf for over 25 years. You guys have put in some years at the Steppenwolf. Some credits include the Rembrandt. That was with John Mahoney, the late, great John Mahoney. Straight White Men, Between Riverside and Crazy, Domesticated, Grand Concourse, Slow Girl, Superior Donuts, Purple Heart, and many others. She's worked at Northlight Theater over the course of many seasons as well, taking shows to the Galway Arts Festival and the Bite Festival at the Barbican Center in London. She stage managed the regional and Broadway productions of Buried Child. That I did. That's a cool play. It was a great experience. It really was. And she has been a proud member of Actors' Equity Association for over 25 years. Stage managers, professional stage managers in a union situation are members of Actors' Equity, so the same Mm -hmm. as the actors. So Mm -hmm. we have a certain symbiosis going on with them. Mm -hmm. Most people have heard the term stage manager and may have a certain image of what that position does on a theatrical production. What exactly does a stage manager do? This could be a long, long story, but it, is. it could be a long story. I would just say that you're the sort of organizational head of the production, and you try to set a tone in the room, which I always say allows the creative artist to be creative. Mm-hmm. That you try not to say no too much without thinking about it, and that you try to let people try things because that's you know how we. How we learn in the theater is by trying stuff, is by trying something and it doesn't work, so we'll try something else and, and so forth. 
it sounds like you shouldn't, you know, that that's not part of it, but really it's, it's to try to be creative and find a way to let the artists who are in the room do their work and not mm-hmm. feel encumbered by the person with the big ring of keys and, uh, <laughs> and saying no all the time and stuff like that, because that's kind of counterproductive, I feel. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, creating a safe environment where people can be genuinely vulnerable to be able to do what they do. I mean, the most of an actor's day is getting the job and everything else is, requires them to have a skill set that isn't allowing them to feel and be vulnerable and do what they need to do. And I think, and I did learn this from Malcolm, and I sort of expanded in my own room about making them feel it's really okay to fail because you have to, as Malcolm was saying, try things out until you figure out exactly what works. And, and sometimes that's supporting the director and that as much as it is supporting the actors and then giving them what they need to do that. So figuring out if this scene might be much more productive as we rehearse it with some actual props. Like, let's, they need to chop vegetables. Let's get some vegetables. And so I've been pretty proactive about getting that stuff in as soon as we can to help the actors connect to what they need to do. Yeah, as I hear you both saying it, it's, it's, a lot of it is about creating a safe space. Correct. Uh, a, a place where people can feel vulnerable and not feel embarrassed by it or mm-hmm. criticized for it or made fun of in any sort of way. That's a, that's a really intangible part of what stage managers do, and there's a lot that goes into doing that. What you there's were saying, of, Malcolm? There's a lot of tangible things, too, setting schedules and calling the actors for their costume fittings and other things that that are more of the organizational part of the job where you need to be organized enough to know when the director wants to do act two, scene three, that you need these seven actors. And these three actors are not busy in scene act two, scene three, so you can do costume fittings with them. There's an awful lot of jigsaw puzzle work at the same time as there is trying to create an atmosphere where the artists are free to create. It's kind of a dual uh, operation where you've got to be very detail-oriented at the same time as you're sort of wide open to whatever comes along. And, you know, I find that as I get older and have done this longer, that I really just need to be calm and not worry about, you know, well, we did it that way yesterday. Why aren't we doing it that way again? It would be easier for me if we did it that way again. And that's not right, because I, I need them to figure out what's right for the moment in the, in, the, in the theater piece, in the play, and not worry about my being expedient for my purposes. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's a mistake that can get made. I, I think the better stage managers don't make that mistake, but it's certainly one that is a possible problem. Sure. I was a stage manager for many, many years. I started my career in 1980, joined Actors Equity then, so I've got at least one of you beat (laughs) in terms of years. It's a fine line sometimes as a stage manager. As, As you say, you're somewhat subservient to the creative process. You kind of let it happen and you don't you don't take it personally when they change the blocking at the last minute. Right, you just correct. have to kind of go with it. On the other hand, you're also a center of kind of power and control in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And people look to you. You're sort of part mother, part father sometimes, uh, confessor. Disciplinarian. Disciplinarian. You're yeah. there to support the rule book along mm-hmm. with the, the, uh, the Actors' Equity deputy in the company and things like that. How long have you been a member of Actors' Equity, Malcolm? I joined in 1977, so I'm a little ahead of you. Oh, rats! I thought I had to beat. Congratulations. What makes a great working experience for you? You you have to collaborate with everyone, the actors, the designers. Stage managers, in my experience at least, walk a fine line between the actors and the creative process and management. What makes a great experience? Is it the collaborations? Is it the show itself? Is it the directors and the actors? If you think back on some of your most rewarding experiences, what kinds of things attributed to that? I guess for me, it's when that all comes together. And it doesn't always. Sometimes you can have an amazing director and an okay play. I recently did the world premiere of Bruce Norris's Downstate. And I felt that he wrote some of those roles for those actors 
So some of those actors that I've worked with for years were doing some of the best work I've ever seen them do. Pam McKinnon was the director, and she is an incredibly talented, compassionate, kind, and right, Mel? Yes, I mean, just great totally. to work with woman. And, and it, was, it was important. The play was important, and it had a lot of difficult questions that it was asking the audience. And we all collectively really put our ass on the line for that play and what we thought it was important to do. And so the moment of first preview happened, and when the audience stood up, I mean, all I could do was the behavioral gesture of throwing my arms in the air because it, it felt like a touchdown. It felt like this incredible touchdown. And that's, for me, like top 10 theatrical experiences. Even just that first preview. Opening it and running it was incredibly difficult and hard, but so rewarding. And for me, one downstate can get me through... 15 years of Neil Simon or whatever, you know, and I love doing Neil Simon. <laughs> yeah, no, I did no, a lot no, of no. Neil Simon in you know, my but day. You know what I mean? Like that when you felt like the kismet of making a difference of all of this collaboration of an actor being incredibly vulnerable to go where they needed to go to do that play, Bruce in writing it and asking and challenging society some really hard questions and Pam somehow bringing it all together in the, and the technical support of this very difficult transition through this shocking moment in the play, it was just, it was really magical. It was really magical. Well, and I would just say, because Pam directed the revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I did on Broadway, and, you know, it was with Tracy Letts and Amy Morton playing George and Martha, who have played opposite each other. In fact, I think Amy Morton directed him in it in Atlanta some years before that. And the way she approached them was very smart. She didn't, wasn't challenging them. She was working with them and urging them along and so forth and so on and, and drawing out performances that were extraordinary mm-hmm. and creating a room that they could try things in. Again, I was going back to creating the room, but, but she was, she's an awesome director and uh, very smart and very intelligent uh, about the theatrical process. Yeah. So I enjoy, really enjoyed working with her. I mean, you know, in response to your original question, I would say, uh, and I agree with Laura, that, you know, when they all come together, it's very special. But there are different elements in each production that I find to be, sometimes it's the cast, sometimes it's the play, sometimes it's the director. If you're really lucky, it's all of those things that make it worthwhile. Uh, you know, stage management is not a, an endeavor where you're going to get a lot of pats on the back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are from the people who know what you do. But uh, when I taught stage management at DePaul, which I did for five years, I encouraged my students to try to get find their own rewards in it and to realize what their own whether they were doing a good job or not, and to think good thoughts about the good work that they're doing, or if they weren't doing it well, that they needed to think about ways they could improve. Because, you know, it's a school, so you're, you're still on the path of learning. But that it really is about self-analysis and being, being aware of, of your own performance, and you have to be able to monitor that and modulate it to improve. Yeah, and preparing for this today, I was, I was talking to my husband about, I've always found it challenging to say what a stage manager does. Like, it's just, it's, it's such a nuanced job. And he came up, which I think is brilliant, of, of the analogy of it's kind of like being a catcher in baseball, that you're probably not seen. People aren't going to know your face. You know, you're covered in a mask. But, you know, everyone's going to celebrate the no-hitter, but no one usually celebrates, you know, the catcher who called the no-hitter, right? So I like to think of myself as Grandpa Rossi sometimes, <laughs> and that, you know, <laughs> that everyone is moving in that field off of what I'm telling them to do, but hopefully you're not noticing me doing that. And I think that for people who don't have any knowledge about theater, I think it's a really, really great analogy that we are kind of like the catcher. My knees sure. feel like it, it, can, <laughs> it It can be a bit of a thankless job. Yeah in certain circumstances, mm-hmm. and that 
that can be very distressing because you work so, so darn hard to try to make the production as quality as possible and you're supporting the director and the actors mm-hmm. and the designers all at the same time. And you mentioned Downstate, which we saw. Francis Guinan was in the play and just a fantastic fantastic cast and beautifully done it's just opened in london i believe it's about to next week is it's opening at the national theater it's been a co-production the whole time between Mm -hmm. steppenwolf and uh the national theater everyone went but me um (laughs) the full cast so it's the original company and pam and bruce it's just the stage managers from england came to america we taught them the show we double you know we duplicated all the paperwork and the production books and then sent them back on their jolly way to do it there. And I, I, I presume you got paid lots of extra for doing that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure you did, yeah. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. They, Correct answer for management they, is? They're throwing <laughs> money around everywhere. So that was one of your more rewarding experiences. What's the most stressful project you ever worked on? Can you recall, and why was it stressful? Well, I would say Paul Simon's The Cape Man. Because it was a giant musical with 45 people on stage, 26-piece band. Paul Simon, who was um, a genius and a nice guy, but very demanding uh, of musically. It was just stressful because, you know, you had this $10 million, $13 million production, and you were the person who had to operate it, and there were a lot of... Sequences in the play, usually, I'd say in, a, in most plays, you have a sequence or two that are a little troubling in terms of your cue calling. Sure. This play had a dozen or 15 sequences that were very tricky uh, because it had lots of moving scenery. It had lots of projections. It had moving lights. It had cueing the actors on and off. It was a quite an event and it was tricky to get you know I felt for the first week or so that I was doing previews that the show was running away from me as opposed to I was was running the show Mm -hmm. and eventually I sort of turned a corner and started to run the show and had had it under my skin but it was very very stressful and you know the stakes are high and it's commercial production and Everybody's hoping that Paul Simon's going to be a failure, you know. When we posted closing, the Daily News and the, uh, and the Post was a front-page story with, well, I can't remember which one had this headline, picture of Paul Simon said, Paul Simon's play slip slides away, you know. <laughs> They've been waiting to use that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, they had know, that on the and they, on and file. He had said a few things that didn't endear him to the Broadway crowd anyway, but... It was very stressful because we were under all this pressure. You know, we didn't try out out of town. We just tried out in on Broadway. Yeah. Not the best idea, probably, uh, yeah. in the long run. And how many directors did you go through, Mel? I worked with at least five. Oh, see, I was going to guess three. I, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, for a stage manager, that's... I kept feeling like I was going to be the next one. And, you know, right. I described it, everybody said, well, you're doing really well. You haven't been fired yet. And I said, well... You have to understand that in the shooting gallery of my stage management career, my bunny rabbit hasn't come over the horizon yet. And when it comes over the horizon, it's just going to get stuck up there and go back and forth and back and forth. (laughs) And they're going to blow my head off. While people take pot shots at you, for sure. It's going to get stuck on top and... I'm sure Legs Diamond wasn't that different. I have similar (laughs) stories. I did uh, three original musicals on Broadway, one of which we opened out of town in Toronto. So we had a a little bit of a Uh a stepping stone anyway to Broadway. But I, I would say that the shows that are not going well, that are that are really poorly constructed, poorly conceived, maybe even poorly cast or poorly directed. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones where stage managers really find the, that their metal is tested. The Legs Diamond was I- incredibly challenging. We previewed for almost nine weeks because they just couldn't get it right. And by right. the time we opened, it bore no resemblance to what we had at the first preview, including new script pages and new mm-hmm. scenery and 
So uh, I, I remember several days coming to work and just sort of collapsing for a moment in tears in my office before the day started because mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, it was going to be another 10-hour day of mm-hmm. rewrites and requeuing and rebuilding And when scenery. you know it's just not going to make it any better. It's just not. just going to keep going yeah, and going. And Harvey Firestein was the book writer on that show, and he just kept writing new scenes. And uh, it was quite the... Well, I lost some hairs on my head during that production. (laughs) How about you, Laura? What's been the most stressful show that you worked on? It was a production of uh, Mother Courage at Steppenwolf. And our third day of tech, our second 10 out of 12, was 9-11. And we worked for 14 hours that day. You know, and it was a very, very, very big show. Uh, T-Bone Burnett had done the orchestrations of the music, we, you know, we were actually using union musicians, which we almost never do at Steppenwolf. We had a lot of non-singers singing. And I try and hold on to what I learned from that production because I feel like it's also when I always encourage people to go to college so that you have a place where you can fail because it's school. It's not a commercial production. It's not a regional theater production. <laughs> we just got to a, a place where it was just like, like we felt we were in war and we were just going to go on and go on and every day presented another challenge and somehow we just kept going. We just kept going. And it became an us and them mm. thing and so that anything that felt that it wasn't supporting us trying to keep the show together and really, you know, as my assistant pointed out at the time, she was like, look, every time you go demanding more money or another actor or is that, you know, you you're reminding them that it's not very good and very expensive. And so (laughs) those are things producers don't want to remember. And I had a real awakening moment when I realized after the fact that the casting director was also doing the best she could. She couldn't give me what I needed, but that wasn't meaning she wasn't supporting me. And it was a good moment for me to like, because, you know, you get so tunneled vision when it's so big and not going well that to open up and realize that, you know, the associate artistic director is trying his best to support this. It's just not what you need, and that's not about you. That's about them doing their best work. And so I, ever since then, I've tried, and I'm sometimes not successful, but I've tried to remember that everyone's doing the best they can for their department to then support the play. As you said, Gary, it is very stressful when the elements, when you have a variety of elements that don't work together. That's when I think is really the hardest because it could be a bad play. It could be a miscast play. It could be a director who doesn't understand the play. It could be a bad set. But in essence, when the curtain goes up, you're the one driving the bus. Mm-hmm. And right. if the bus has flat tires, it's kind of hard to drive it. Or sometimes you get dragged behind it. <laughs> Correct, yes. We had some train wrecks on Legs Diamond, that's for sure. The show stopped cold because the set failed to move. You know, that's, yeah. those are the moments yep. that chill your spine. Yep. <laughs> and yes, you don't exactly. know what to do. I have to mention this. Steppenwolf Theater announced just recently the addition of stage manager Malcolm Ewan into the company's elite ensemble. Congratulations. Congratulations, Malcolm. Well, thank you very much. An yeah. honor he didn't even think was possible. I would be lying if I said I never thought about it, but after working there for over 30 years, the ensemble was actors, directors, and playwrights, and that it was kind of a closed club, and so I thought about it every now and then, but I never really thought they would take action. Mm. But they did, and I'm honored and humbled, and uh, it's a recognition of all the years and years and years of hard work. The fact that I've worked with almost everybody, I've worked with everyone in the ensemble, but I've worked with many of them, most of them, and I'm kind of a common denominator. Probably no, probably work with more of the ensemble members than, than the average newer ensemble member certainly has. Probably, yeah. Artistic director Anna D. Shapiro has said, there is no one who embodies what it means to be an ensemble member more than Malcolm Ewan. 
we all know the lie of the theater is that it's made by the people you can see. For more than 30 years, Malcolm has been a pillar of Steppenwolf, contributing immensely to the honor, to the legacy, and to the spirit of this company. Malcolm has touched the lives of every single member of our ensemble, and it's time for the world to know the impact he has made and continues to make on all of us. What does this come with? Do you get a... a, a <laughs> A key to the ensemble club? Is there a, a secret dressing room? Is there a handshake? Uh, is there a discount card for the front bar kind of thing? I'm supposed to get a fob that opens all the doors, but I haven't gotten it yet. Uh, it's mostly just recognition. There's no, there's no specific no tangible thing. Club, yeah. We well, get your picture on the wall. Yes, right? I put my picture on the wall and my... I get a bio in every program now, like a little nice. thing. And, uh, you know, I'm on the invite to the uh, Steppenwolf Gala. And some poor bunch of donors who bought a table are going to get, instead of getting oh. Gary Sinise, they're going to get me. They're going to get you. Yeah, but you've got the better stories. The <laughs> you've got the better stories. Co- You'll appreciate that quickly enough. Co-founder yeah. Gary Sinise has said, Malcolm Ewan is our brother. He's our dear friend. He's our gifted, steady hand, ensuring in so many instances over the years that our productions sailed into port without hitting the rocks. There you go. That sort of sums up stage management right there. Malcolm has been part of our Steppenwolf family and his officially becoming a member is simply a formal way to tell him we love him, we appreciate him, we're grateful for him, and that he's been a member of our ensemble living within our hearts for decades. You've come a long way with Steppenwolf since the days when they were, were, were you with them when they were in the church basement? Uh, uh, no, I, I started working there in 1987, so uh, about 10 years later. 2851 North Halstead was my first. Mine too, yeah. You know, I, I've always felt like I'm part of the company, I'll say that. I'm sure you do too. The formalization of it uh, by becoming an ensemble member is heartening and humbling. I feel like I've been part of the company for 30 years, so. I also feel you were involved in such seminal moments in the expansion of the company. From the Grapes of Wrath, one of Malcolm's favorite topics, and we all love to hear him talk about it. But also in the creation of the what was the new building, and I guess since it opened in 1991, I should stop calling it the new building. But at 1615 North Halstead, Malcolm was the production manager at the time as well. And so bringing that building to completion was... a enormous task. I think that's why I'm sort of, everyone's really excited, and I am too, about the new building, but I, there is a little bit like, okay, yeah, construction, here we go. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. been there, done that. I mean... Steppenwolf just broke ground on their new theater, Correct. which is going to replace the upstairs theater. Correct. Uh, it's an, it's an in-the-round configuration, from what I can tell, and the renderings make me think a little bit of Circle in the Square in New York kind of way. Yes, yes I think um, that was an inspiration. Yeah, it, it looks lovely and beautiful, and uh, I think it's going to be very exciting. We sometimes do a segment called Good Times and Bum Times. <laughs> I take that from Follies. Today is no exception. Our good time news today is a, a good week for integrity after the ex-wife of a man who just won $273 million in the Mega Millions that's pretty good. Yeah. I'd give up stage management yeah, yeah. for that. Uh-huh. Lottery announced that she doesn't want to take him back or a cent of his winnings, despite supporting him for years. He's not appealing to me all of a sudden because he has this money, said Eileen Murray, 53. I have morals. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. I, I, know, I, don't... I remember that guy just when he won and he had just been divorced a week before. Yeah. So, <laughs> timing. It's timing. all about timing, isn't it? I, I might I might have taken an ex back. Yeah. Well, not now, but at some point. I mean, it would have been like, gee, honey, it was all my fault, really. Right. right. <laughs> In our bum time segment, it's not a good week for uh, holiday songs with the arrest of Clayton Lucas, a 25-year-old from Pittsburgh who allegedly tried to choke his Lyft driver from the back seat because the man wouldn't stop singing out-of-season Christmas songs. <laughs> kind of Did he pick him up at a bar? Yeah. I'm wondering if where the, what that ride was from. <laughs> 
I think it's semi-justified. Okay. It's okay. semi. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to, to promote violence, but if still. It was, if it was Little Drummer Boy over and over again, I think it would be justified. <laughs> With the prum, pum, 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 pum. Let's talk about Grapes of Wrath a little bit. Yes, you please. did that show at Steppenwolf and then took it to Broadway, Malcolm. Yes, we took it to first to the La Jolla Playhouse and then the London's Royal National Theater and then the Broadway. Do you have some war stories about that show? <laughs> Before he goes, and there are some, so many wonderful, but there's many of us that have been trained by Malcolm and still work with Malcolm that love to, whenever we hit a moment, Malcolm will go, well, when we were doing The Grapes of Wrath, and then the story continues from there. <laughs> and, and all everybody goes, oh, not another one of those stories. <laughs> Some of my favorite stories are, though, especially from the preview process in Chicago, I think. Yeah, it was very long in Chicago. The first preview, which was on a Thursday, was three and a half hours long. And on Saturday, we had scheduled a 5.30 and a 9.30 performance. Oh, dear. So there's only four hours between the shows. <laughs> and Frank Galati came in, brilliant director, adapter, came in with a bunch of cuts, which we put in on Friday. And he cut, God, I don't know, 35 minutes off the show. He didn't cut the grapes, did he? <laughs> no. 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 But it, it was kind of like whole scenes, characters and things were jettisoned. And, and then the first Saturday, you know, we went up a little bit late at the 5.30 show. show was just a little over three hours. And the equity contract required there to be an hour between the curtain down and the curtain up. So the 9.30 show started about quarter to 10, mm. 10 of 10. Mm. The first act was almost two hours in. So you look out from the booth at 10 minutes to midnight <laughs> and you watched and, know, and everybody knowing that there was another act coming <laughs> and this big exodus out of the house uh, and then we slogged forward to... And you knew they weren't coming back, yeah. Oh, God, no, yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, they was like, we only paid our babysitter till midnight, you know. <laughs> so that was kind of bad. Also, that same day, they were required to feed us. So the cast went upstairs at the end of the first show to eat, and the crew stayed downstairs to reset. And by the time the crew got up to the dining area the only thing left was boiled potatoes <laughs> that went over well i'm sure then they ended up several had to buy pizzas for all of the crew which they couldn't get in the time we had because we got there about we finished with about 20 about the 20 minute call so the pizzas were delivered to us backstage and around the theater to try to scarf them down while you were in the middle of running the show. Sure. Someone gave me a Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> that you still have. I still have. In, in, in commemoration of the boiled potatoes being left? Correct, because yeah. the mm. next day we went up there and the only thing left was potato salad on the Sunday. Brilliant. <laughs> and I suggested they either or need to order more food or they need to hold back some food for the crew. They eventually got that show down to a playable length. Uh, 240. 2.40. When I got to Broadway, uh, we had 41 people in it in Chicago, which was too many. The Royal George had three dressing rooms. You kind of fit six people in each. Mm -hmm. And then we built a dressing station in the hallway outside the dressing rooms for 10 guys. And then we had the traveling stage management office or production office, which they stuffed everybody else in, about 15 people in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I used to go in to re return valuables after the show because they one of the things you have to do check valuables. Part on. of one of the stage manager's duties is mm -hmm. to collect people's wallets or watches or loose change or whatever they want you to hold on to Wedding bands, during yeah. the show and lock it up and then return it afterwards. Near the end of the play, there's a big flood scene, a big rain scene. And I would go back in that production office and there would be mounds of wet clothing on the floor, which you'd have to walk across to hand out the 
wallets at, after the show. And I kept thinking, you know, they only had one wardrobe person on the show for 41 actors. And I can't imagine that she wasn't there for till four in the morning with the, just a dryer. They had, they had one electric dryer. <laughs> That's a so, lot of, yeah, it was a lot of Levi's, yeah. A lot of Levi's. Yeah. <laughs> I love this story, and I, forgive me if I get it wrong, if it was first or second preview. I was an intern at the time when they were doing Grapes of Wrath. So I was helping in the prop shop making props and standing down the set and stuff, and it was a particularly large show for Steppenwolf at that time. They'd never done anything that size. And early on, I hope it's not a spoiler, but Grandpa Joe dies, and so they have to bury him. And so it was this deck of planks that were sort of on different levels, like an N1, N2, N3, and they would pull up a little section, and it was all of a sudden, then they can dig, a, and there was dirt inside there, and they would dig it up and then lay this fake grandpa. Steppenwolf loves dirt. They do love they a little love dirt. The they digging. do love a little dirt. So much so that no one thought about, well, if we fill it level as a grave, and then they dig the dirt out, all the dirt's got to go back in because it can't be on the way because the truck's going to get in the way. So they put poor grandpa in there, the dummy of it, put the dirt back on, and now, of course, they can't get the lid back on. <laughs> And the Joe truck is going to have to move back and forth over poor old, uh, the, the dummy of Nate Davis. I ended up making a couple of those. Yes. Yeah. Stage managers have to deal with crisis situations all the time. Yes. Hopefully by the time you get to opening night, the crises have been solved and everything's going to run smoothly for the rest of the, the run. Tell me about a few of your most harrowing experiences, Laura. Well, I immediately think of early on, and it's sort of one of my favorite stories to tell that Malcolm was a part of because he was the production manager of a time, when we were now in the new building and we were doing a new play called Slip of the Tongue, starring John Malkovich. We were in the first weekend of previews and the first act took place in basically what would be this, this poet's cabin in the woods somewhere in East Eastern Germany. European, yes. Yeah, and it was completely enclosed. So it was on these two little like wagons that would then go off, one would go off right, one would go off left, and there was masking on either side that stayed in, so it stayed in like this pretty little box. The big scene change would happen, which was that the masking left and right would go up, the little wagons, one would go off right, one would go off left, and we'd bring the masking back in. And then this huge set that's behind it, would then, John Malkovich would do this monologue in this sort of still space, and we'd bring on this another huge set. Well, the wagons started to go, and then they stopped and they wouldn't go, and they wouldn't go. So I was the ASM at the time, so myself and the Doug Thompson, the floor manager, go out there and we start to physically pull it off. So we pull and we pull and we pull, and we get it as far as we can, but obviously something's stuck, and so the masking won't come all the way back in. But we get it off <laughs> enough that Malfoy's just like, well, I'll just keep going. So. He starts his monologue, and it's direct address to the audience, and he's talking to them. Meanwhile, now Malcolm's backstage. We're all trying to figure out what the heck's going on. There's flashlights or whatever. And Malcolm looked and realized what had happened, which is when we pulled these wagons off, it had pulled masking from left and right on stage, and it was fouling, pulling 20-plus-foot booms of lighting equipment onto stage. And we still had to then open up this next piece of masking and bring it down stage. And Malcolm said, we're expletive yeah while we're trying to figure this out all of a sudden Malkovich finally stops because he can hear us like mice <laughs> sure. running and panicking back yeah. there about what are we going to do because we have like maybe just under two minutes to figure this out and he stops and he looks at Malcolm and he goes do we need to stop Mal <laughs> Mal was just immediately as if you had been caught with your hand in the cookie jar and was no no no, no. we're fine we're fine keep going keep going <laughs> and I remember John saying uh, wait what was I saying and so we didn't have wireless headsets or anything back then. So the floor manager dove to the headset, put it back on, and he went to the stage manager, what's, what's, what's the line? And she's like, well, what's the last thing he said? And he was like, how the f should I know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I yelled out, something about bird cages. Bird and he was like, oh, thank you. And then he looked at the audience and he said, that's why they call them previews, folks. <laughs> we, we should have stopped. We didn't stop. We opened the yeah. scenery. This huge piece of scenery came trucking on downstage and we finished the play with actors having to duck underneath the masking to get on stage and then duck back under to get off stage <laughs> known as the train wreck and when the the technical directors showed up between shows to fix it 
there was always, there was one girl stage right and all the rest of us are stage left. And when you saw it, I mean, it looked like a, it almost looked like when those trucks get stuck underneath a viaduct. Like it just sort of like crinkled up and on itself. And they were like, well, what, why didn't you yell stop? What was happening? And the one girl who was running that side, she was like, I was crying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're lucky you dropped something here horrible on her. I don't, I don't think our listeners can hear Malcolm's eye roll, <laughs> but it was, it was significant. And it, if you were a little closer, uh, you, you would have heard it. How about you, Malcolm? Is that the most harrowing experience you've had in the theater i i remember a couple of shows that i worked on where something like that happened and you know your first instinct is not to stop yeah you want to go on because the show has momentum and the actors have changes to do and Mm -hmm. costumes and props and everything's kind of a moving Mm -hmm. juggernaut and just because the set broke down doesn't mean that you have to kind of stop in front of an audience. It's it's very unusual and rare, unless you're working on Spider-Man. Uh, oh, right, right. Those <laughs> those, those were stage the, managers. Yeah, yeah. All, all seven of them they had on that show. Any other harrowing experience stories from you, Malcolm? Well, I've had my share of scenic crashes. Yeah. We had one show of the government inspector at the Goodman in 1985, where... Like Michael Merritt was a set designer, brilliant set design. Great, great designer, yeah. Had three long slip stages. By slip stages, I mean that they were, stages were 90 feet long, and you could have three full-stage sets on them. So you could have position one, two, or three on each of those slip stages be the center of what the audience saw. And so sometimes two of them would go one way, sometimes they'd all go one way, and Mm -hmm. Sometimes the two go one way and one goes the other way and so forth and so on. And in the first intermission, they had one section. It was like a second act was a barn, I think. And they had to wheel this slip stage over and hook it up to a block and fall and pull it up. Then they pushed the slip stage away and they put it on a parking thing and they rolled it away. Well, they got it partway up and then the, the block and fall broke. So this thing, which had long, skinny, metal tubular legs, fell on its side, which was clearly never designed to do. And <laughs> we had all these people in period costumes trying to stand it back up. And at the same time, there was an actress who'd had a collapse, collapsed in the dressing rooms. I don't know if you're ever in the old Goodman. The dressing rooms were up three flights of stairs. She was a heavy set woman, and they called paramedics who got all the way up the steps and then called for more paramedics because they couldn't carry her down. <laughs> wow. And, you know, I had to put the understudy on who wasn't ready, even though it was the mm. third week of the run. And I chided mm-hmm. the understudy at the understudy rehearsal to say, you know, you need to get, you need to be ready. Learn your lines. Yeah. And, and, and she said, oh, you know, so and so has never missed a show in her life. Till that night, yeah. Sure. Uh, and then uh, that was stressful. It was my first show at the Goodman. And, you know, anytime it's your first show, you feel like you're somehow screwing it all up. And even though nobody blamed me, it was, you know, nothing I did was wrong. It just yeah. was. It didn't make it better as much as you wanted it to. Yeah. Right. We had a 28-minute intermission. And <laughs> when I announced that the understudy was going on in Act 2, I'm assuming that the audience all thought that she'd been crushed by the piece of scenery (laughs) because the house carpenter lifted this thing up, the rope broke, and then, you know, the curtain was open. no curtain. And this guy unleashed a set of invective that would have made a (laughs) sailor turn red. And so, you know, I'm sure they all thought, oh, well, she must have been hit by that <laughs> Washed. crushed i know you've both committed great many years of your lives to stage management mm-hmm. and a life in the theater let me ask you this if you would have liked to have done something else with your life mm-hmm. other than this mm-hmm. what might that have been even though i i taught stage management once um, for one semester at the university of illinois chicago 
and I found it so incredibly stressful and nerve-wracking. I think maybe a teacher. The mentor part of my job, I really enjoy. And now that I find myself at a certain age, the majority of people working backstage are much, much younger. You know, I'm 25 plus years older than most of them. And there's something kind of fantastic sometimes about working with younger people, not only just to help me figure out how to use my phone, but just, you know, <laughs> that it keeps, it keeps me, I feel a little bit younger at heart, you know? And so mentoring young stage managers is something I really enjoy doing. So maybe I would have been a teacher. You know, there's also a stage manager that I know that she has a full-time job, nine-to-five job, but in the theater. And my guess is she probably makes a better living than I do being freelance. And then she, she has a connection with a smaller equity theater. And then, so therefore she stage manages what she wants to stage manage. And they treat her as a company member. And that's a whole nother way to do this job that she doesn't have to do the show. She doesn't want to do the show. And therefore, you know, and of course I, I've always thought I've, you know, those non-equity stage managers that are working 40 hours a week and then running and doing these huge shows at steep or at Raven that's incredibly hard, and I didn't have to do that. But at the same time, the idea of having a solid living, I mean, I have a family, I have two kids, like that, having that, and then doing what I wanted to, that's... And Malcolm had this, these 30 years at, at Weston that I, it was interesting, there'd always be a part in the spring where Mal would just start to get a little happier and a little happier because he knew he was on his way to Vermont. <laughs> and he had his heart where, you know, with this, this incredibly creative, rewarding experience that he was choosing to do, didn't mean he didn't like his work, but I, I was always a little envious of that, I must say. How about you, Malcolm? If there was a choice to not pursue a life or career in the theater, what might you have done? Well, I think teaching is probably part of it, too, would be for me. I like historical research as well, which would be more in the dramaturgical set kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. well i can't work in theater because that's the question but well uh, it but if you have no other choice if that's your calling that's your calling i mean yeah. if i were to ask a priest this question they'd say well i don't i'm right i'm a priest <laughs> i have a yeah, calling totally. well malcolm has also always been incredibly involved with the union and an advocate for all of us not necessarily social worker. I, I wouldn't but do that as a. I wouldn't do that as a career. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I thank you for your service. I spent enough time on committees. To I know. thank you as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned doing shows that you don't maybe want to do. Mm-hmm. How do they assign plays and projects to you at Steppenwolf? Is it just every other one, every third one, or I can try to match us? I think with the directors and the material in a roll-the-dice kind of way. <laughs> you know, if it's a certain director, like for me it's Frank Galati, generally speaking, they'll almost always put me on his shows mm-hmm. because they have a good working relationship, but there's other directors that always you always work with and things that, or playwrights you've tended to work with, and it's sort of hit and miss. I mean, some of it depends on schedules. And it so. also depends on management. I mean, in our, in our tenure at Steppenwolf, there's been several different production managers, and I think they all had slightly different ways of doing it, as well as different artistic directors, and they all had slightly different ways. And the programming has expanded so much, from just five shows to now there's really nine, if you include the SYA productions for the young adults. So it's some sort of a dating game algorithm that I don't fully always understand. But yes, I mean, for me, it was always John Mahoney, whether that was working at Northlight or at Steppenwolf, because... I was sort of like a John Mahoney whisperer. We just had an incredibly close, good working relationship. So bless his heart, he would always ask for me, but also I, was real, I felt very comfortable in helping him get through productions as well. Yeah, that was a tremendous loss to our community and mm-hmm. to the world of entertainment in general. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry for your loss. I knew that you were you. very close. I was. I wanted to quickly go through what Steppenwolf has announced as their next season. Mm-hmm. It's very basketball heavy. It is. Oddly. It is. It is, yes. (laughs) Strangely so. Not that that makes any difference. They're doing a play called King James, directed by Anna D. Shapiro, which will depict life in Cleveland after 2016 when LeBron James left town Mm -hmm. and took Mm -hmm. his talents to Los Angeles. Other highlights from the Steppenwolf season coming up include the debut of Help Me With This Pronunciation, 
Lindaway. 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 That Malcolm and I are scheduled to do together. Very exciting. Musical featuring works by the famed South African group Ladysmith Black Mombasso. That will be in the fall. Uh, Tracy Letts, Tony Award and Pulitzer Prize winner, will bring his play Bug to Mm -hmm. Chicago. That hasn't been here in quite some time. Mm -mm. Never Uh, been done at Steppenwolf either. Never been done at Steppenwolf. And they're bringing in David Cromer. Bringing him back. He has directed there before. Yeah. But it's been a long time. Yeah. He's doing Next to Normal up at Writers this spring, which I'm excited about seeing. David Cromer, local boy made good, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tony Award for the band's visit, which unfortunately is closing in just a Mm -hmm. few more weeks. Lauren Yee's The Great Leap will make a leap into Chicago. The work tracks an American basketball team. <laughs> you're going to have to buy basketballs by, I, I by the so. caseload. I guess so. If you're going to do you know, these two plays. The work tracks an American basketball team's trek to Beijing in the late 1980s. And finally, The Brothers Size, an early Terrell Alvin McCraney work headlining Steppenwolf's young adult program, as well as a world premiere of I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. Mm-hmm. By Isaac Gomez. By an Isaac ad- Gomez, me, direct, directed by Sandra Marquez. Uh-huh. Uh, they just did La, La Ruta, Ruta together. together. Yep. And I'm looking forward to that. I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. It's, it's based on a novel. novel. He's adapting. Do you enjoy working on new plays as much as established scripts? Uh, it's a whole different kind of kettle of fish at times because, well, the actors and director are kind of making it up as they go along and new pages come in and new pages go out. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you enjoy that process? Sometimes. I mean, it, it depends on the play. There's been established. I mean, I love doing Sam Shepard and I'm going to do Sam Shepard again this summer at Steppenwolf. So that's that's a favorite. You know, I don't. Though it is interesting, when we did do Barry Child, Sam did start rewriting it. Mm. So it inadvertently became a new play. But also, I mean, I've been able to do a lot of Bruce Norris plays that are new plays, and he doesn't change nearly as much in rehearsal as, say, Tina Landau does. But then also those can be incredibly rewarding experiences. I I enjoy working on new plays as much as uh, I do working on established plays like Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have slightly different things to make them enjoyable, but every time you do a play, hopefully anyway, you're not just recreating somebody else's version of the play, you're recreating, even if it's Virginia Woolf, you're trying to take a, do a fresh take on it, and that can be as exciting as a new play. Mm-hmm. Well, if you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best and lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Malcolm Ewan and Laura Glenn, Laura D. Glenn, uh, <laughs> you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. That's dash O-N-E.com. And click on the donate button. It's easy. It'll make you feel good. And it's tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any and all contributions would be greatly appreciated. I have another weird philosophical metaphysical question for you. If you could have one thing delivered to your doorstep every morning, like milk or mm. the newspaper, mm. what kind of thing would that be? I've asked this of many guests <laughs> before, know, and we've had some fantastic answers. The first thing that came to mind was lunches for my kids so I don't have to do it. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, right now my husband's doing the bulk of that job as well, but it's that one task in the morning that you don't always have time for, but you have to do it anyways. Yeah. If that just magically showed up, that'd be fantastic. Your husband's an actor. He is. John Lister. John Lister. I've seen him in a number of things. Fine, fine actor. That he is. That he is. So what happens when you guys are both working on shows and you're gone for the evening? Do you just get a sitter? We do. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly challenging work schedule to deal with children, especially when they were little. Uh, when they were little, little, we tried not to work at the same time. Mm. If we could do that, my schedule, I book out a year in advance, so it's a little easier to know where there's holes that maybe he can try and find work. Um, they're getting older now. If he has to leave at 5 and I'm not back till 7, it's not as dire that someone's there. But right now, you know, someone will be there today from 1 until 10.30 are at they, night. Are they not old enough to make their own lunches? Probably technically, but if, I don't know if you ever try to wake an 11-year-old up at 7.15 in the morning and get them moving. It's not the easiest of, of tasks. I, I have not. <laughs> but I'm sure it's one of those stage management challenges that well, you just it, have to do. It is. Uh, my, five minutes, Kevin. Five minutes. My kids say thank you five. 
Get out of here. They absolutely do. They absolutely... Uh, Malcolm and I have a, my best friend, one of Malcolm's best friends, Chris Freeberg, who's also a stage manager. And sometimes when her and I have, you know, the Google Docs calendar out of figuring out... Because her husband's also... Tom Cox is also an actor. Mm. The machinations of who's picking up and who's dropping off and who's... We thought, I don't know how, if you're not a stage manager, you can figure out how to do this. How about you, Malcolm? I don't know. Pot of gold? I don't know. I mean, you know... <laughs> There you go. That's been said. Money <laughs> has been a popular answer to this question, for sure. I mean, I don't really have anything that I need it to get me going in the morning. You know, I have a cup of coffee, but it, I can manage that by myself. Yeah. <laughs> a good turkey sandwich in the New York Times makes Malcolm Ewan a very happy man. So, Laura, you mentioned John Mahoney as mm-hmm. one of the prime actors that you've loved working with Mm -hmm. over the years Mm -hmm. how about you malcolm do you have uh an actor or two that you particularly enjoy working on a play with i've always liked working with tracy letts i've done a couple shows with him Mm -hmm. i think he's funny and yeah he's great smart (laughs) smart as uh you know as can be and and he he also understands the process it's always interesting to me like when you're working on American Buffalo, and he's playing Teach, and or George, and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, and to hear him analyze the structure of the play and how he might, how that might influence the way he plays the scene, is always interesting to me because he's looking at it as a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, and so he's very conscious of the structure and uh and and what the structure might mean and it might help him give him give him clues in how something's played what do you do to make each other laugh tell stories (laughs) yeah yeah tell war stories of grapes of wrath when in doubt i like to do really bad scottish accents and say malcolm yun (laughs) <laughs> you and Al Wilder. Yes, that is true. Al Wilder only talks to you in a Scottish dialect, doesn't he? Most of the time, that's correct. Years ago, it was Malcolm's birthday. We were doing, um, I never sang for my father at Steppenwolf. And, you know, traditionally, you know, you surprise someone with a cake and candles. And, and he knows that I really get into this part of the job. I, I genuinely like it. So he's in the green room and he's like, I'm going up to open the theater now. And I was like, Go on, go on. But what Malcolm didn't know is I had snuck a young man who played the bagpipes into the tech office. And when Malcolm was out opening the theater so the audience would come in, I had the bagpipists come in and then the full cast come into the green room. And we played him happy birthday on a bagpipe, which you've never been indoors. I was going to say the sound of <laughs> kind of loud, yeah, kind of loud but in that really green room. Ma- I got him. I got him. He, he even was like, you got me. All right. Yeah, that was fun. Malcolm, I understand from some source that you're referred to as the king of Broadway <laughs> in some fashion. I, I I assume that that sobriquet has been laid upon you in some facetious way, or are you really the king of Broadway? Uh, no, it was laid on me in a facetious way. After we did uh, The Grapes of Wrath and Terry Kinney was in it, he came back and was in a, the first play we did at the new building, the old new building now, called Another Time. And like all new buildings, it had some problems. It had a floor that wasn't actually flat, and it had a 40-foot turntable on it. Mm. And the motors they put in the turntable weren't strong enough to turn the turntable. So for the first week, until they were able to re-tech it and, and put in different motors in there we had to have a crew run out and push the edge of the platform around to help it over the hump <laughs> and the all actors, hands on deck great and the actors were frozen while they were doing that and so terry kinney was going by me at a snail's pace and said under his breath just think Six months ago, you were the king of Broadway. (laughs) And now you're on your hands and knees pushing me around on this goddamn turntable. (laughs) And I was, so I didn't, you know. And then Albert Finney, who was in the show, took the title up and then called me, King, how are you doing today? And it stuck. And it stuck. 
Well, we're pretty much out of time for today. I know, Laura, you have a show this I afternoon. Have two, yes, today. And, and one this evening. Yeah. I hope it's not a three and a half hour play. You're doing Doll's House Part Two. Correct. So, no, it's an hour 30. Whip right, right in, in, right in out, out, no in intermission. Well, thank you, Malcolm and Laura, for being my guests today. We so appreciate your taking the time to sit in on the booth with your busy schedules. Visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski and Laura and Malcolm. Thank you again. Thank Thank you. you for having us. Saying so long and keep listening. You're listening to Booth One. (laughs) Again. Fantastic.